But the problem is that poverty is getting harder to escape. So social mobility in this country is on the decline, for example. So the barriers to people tapping into their gifts and talents to contribute seem to be getting worse over time, not better, despite so many dedicated efforts. And I think it's because those efforts have all been based on a false definition of poverty. That is Evan Feinberg. I'm Dwayne Lester, and this is Top Priority. Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today, we're going to be talking about poverty. Joining me on today's episode is Evan Feinberg, who's part of the Stand Together community working exclusively on the Poverty Priority Initiative. Also joining the show is the Reverend Dr. DeForest B. Soares, Jr., He served as the senior pastor of the First Baptist Church of Lincoln Gardens in Somerset, New Jersey since November 1990. His pastoral ministry focuses on spiritual growth, educational excellence, and economic empowerment. As a pioneer of the faith-based community development, Dr. Soares' impact on First Baptist Church of Lincoln Gardens and the community has been tremendous. In 1992, he founded the Central Jersey Community Development Corporation, a 501c3 nonprofit organization that specializes in revitalizing distressed neighborhoods. In 1996, he founded the Harvest of Hope Family Services Network. This organization develops permanent solution for children in the foster care system. From 1999 to 2002, he served as New Jersey's Secretary of State making him the first African-American male to do so. He also served as the former chairman of the United States Election Assistance Commission, which was established by Congress to implement the Help America Vote Act of 2002. We have a fantastic discussion about what poverty means, how it's been fought, and the vision for overcoming this barrier. I hope you enjoy it. But I, you know what? Let's start off. Let's start off. I don't. I don't know that I've ever met you, uh, Doctor Soares. Could you tell me? Tell me your story. <laughs> That's a different podcast. My story. But, <laughs> but uh, you, you know, I, I'm an activist. Um, and my in my roots are in activism, um, and I I grew to the point where I realized that as an activist, my job was to point out problems. And I didn't want to spend the rest of my life pointing out problems. I wanted to spend at least a portion of my life solving problems. And so I outgrew activism and expanded into solutions. And so, you know, I've been in, in churches, I've been in government, I've been in corporate roles. And in each instance, I've seen myself as uh, leveraging my talent and my resources to solve specific problems that impact uh, underserved populations. And Evan, how did you get involved in the, in the issue of poverty? 
Well, I was uh, helping to lead a millennial advocacy group called Generation Opportunity, and young people cared a whole lot more about helping to improve the lives of others, and particularly the least fortunate, than they did about advocating for any particular public policies um, that we were uh, advocating for. And so I had been uh, urging our philanthropic community, uh, Stand Together, to uh, to engage more deeply in directly in communities to break the cycle of poverty. Uh, and that's when a number of key stakeholders kind of uh, huddled together and said, we need a really dedicated effort to drive this kind of change in communities and to mobilize people to solve uh, the problems of poverty in their communities. And that's when we, we launched actually what is now, what is known as Stand Together Foundation uh, back in uh, early 2016. So poverty is one of the priority initiatives that Stand Together is looking at. It's kind of a big word. I mean, not the way most people think. Most people think poverty, that's not that big a word. But there's a lot that poverty talks about. And what, it, what do we talk about when we mean we're dealing with poverty? What all goes into that? Well, I think defining poverty is really critical to this entire conversation. Traditionally, most people define poverty as a lack of financial resources, sort of individuals being deficient in the amount of resources they have. And we think this is way too limited of a definition. And if you define it that way, it'll take us down in the entirely wrong path. We define poverty much more robustly as when individuals are not tapping into their gifts and talents to contribute to others and in the process, lifting themselves up and realizing their full potential. And when, when folks face institutional barriers, community barriers, personal barriers that are preventing them from making those contributions, they get stuck and they're not included in the progress and prosperity of society. That to us is poverty and a really important problem to solve for all of us. Dr. Soros, you're nodding your head. You, anything to add on that? Well, the, the reason that definition is so crucial and the reason Evan and I are philosophically joined at the hip is because if you only look at poverty from the perspective of data, the data will aim you towards people who have uh, an economic demographic. And so if I have income below a certain amount of money, I'm defined as being in poverty. Um, however, what, what Evan's describing is, is both cause and effect. It's, it's the condition of poverty and it's also the why. He talks about poverty, including tapping into one's gifts and talents. The question is, why would someone do that? Why, why would someone have gifts and talents and not tap in? Why would someone have access to resources such as education and training and not tap in? And that, that's where we come to a very critical philosophical departure because the, there is a school of thought that sometimes dominates the conversation that says there are barriers that prevent people from tapping in like racism, like sexism uh, and other forms of isms. And those barriers stop people from tapping in. Problem with that argument is that um, those barriers don't seem to affect everyone in the class equally. So you have to wonder if some people who are black uh, tap in and other who are, who are people who are black tap in, then that kind of uh, 
it, it, it undermines the theory that just the condition of being black is a universal barrier. And so you have to go more deeply and, and to figure out why, why do people not tap in? And if you stop with the historic obstacles, for instance, if the reason I don't tap in is because my great grandfather was a slave given a name by a Portuguese slave owner. If you stop right there, you're looking at a fact of my great grandfather having been a slave, but you're not looking at the truth of how I exercise my right and my power to engage options today. And, and that's why it's, uh, it's important to, to, it's important to really hear what Evan's saying. The problem we have is that as soon as we begin talking about tapping into one's gifts and talents, there, there's, there's a whole movement, there's a whole philosophy, there's a whole school of thought that, that quickly fast forwards to the conclusion that we are quote unquote blaming the victim. And, and, and as soon as you're accused of blaming the victim, you're perceived as being heartless and cold and you know, trickle down economics, you know, all, all the code words and the argument, um, the argument ends with that description. So there's no, there's no discourse across philosophical lines because we're able to eliminate the possibility that, that Evan may really have a point. Yeah, so just to follow up on that, you know, I, I think if we accept this sort of uh, limited definition of poverty about just resources, it leads us to a, a terrible false choice. The false choice between these top-down war on poverty approaches to try to, to sweepingly solve the, this resource allocation problem. Or the other choice is that we just need people to pick themselves up by their bootstraps and overcome whatever barriers in their lives. And both of these choices have gotten us absolutely nowhere. We have spent you know, $20 trillion uh, fighting the war on poverty, hundreds of billions of dollars each and every year in private philanthropy and informal work happening in communities, all with this uh, frame that we have a resource allocation problem. And in the process, we have uh, been completely unsuccessful in breaking the cycle of poverty. Uh, it is true that we have made poverty easier to endure, you know, by some measures, if you just take the, the consumption rates in our country, there's really only 2.3% of people in America that are destitute, that can't subsist in our country. So yes, all those war on poverty and the economic progress that we've seen as a country um, approaches have led to uh, better subsistence in America. But the problem is that poverty is getting harder to escape. So social mobility in this country is on the decline, for example. So the barriers to people tapping into their gifts and talents to contribute seem to be getting worse over time, not better, despite so many dedicated efforts. And I think it's because those efforts have all been based on a false definition of poverty. We think of poverty differently. Instead of a resource allocation problem, it, it for us is an innovation problem. There are so many individuals with incredible potential, incredible gifts and talents that face barriers to, to offering those for the betterment of themselves and society. And so if we think about poverty the way that Pastor Soares and I are talking about it, 
we need to have a, a, a robust effort, a dedicated effort. We all need to be super committed to breaking down whatever barriers are preventing all people from realizing their full potential, including everyone in the progress of our society, because we all win when those contributions are made. Each priority initiative is charged with coming up with a, a vision, essentially, a vision for that specific issue. So tell me about the vision for poverty. What have you all what do you all see as as good looking like in this issue? Yeah, well, we envision an America where all people, all people can learn, contribute, and realize their full potential and can create lives of meaning and fulfillment and purpose. And we think that comes from satisfying and fulfilling work and through meaningful relationships and community engagement. And so uh, our vision is to change the way our country thinks about, talks about, and tackles the problem of poverty away from this traditional view of insufficient income to meet basic needs and toward a vision of helping all people to tap into their gifts to contribute. Um, and so our focus is on removing the institutional and social barriers that are uh, preventing folks from realizing that potential. Uh, and ultimately our vision is for, for poverty in this country to become a temporary condition for individuals. We'll always have those folks who have less than others. Our real concern is whether individuals get stuck. And so for us, poverty as a temporary condition is our true vision. Dr. Soares, you first <clears throat> were the first one to bring up barriers. Our, our, the Stand Together Community Vision, we break barriers that stand in the way of people realizing their potential. This moves our society towards one of mutual benefit where people succeed by helping others improve their lives. Could you talk a little bit, and, and Evan, feel free to join in, of course, about some of the barriers, both internal and external, that, that we're dealing with here? Well, some of the barriers are policy-driven. For instance, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, a young man could be in prison and learn how to cut hair and come out of prison and use his haircutting skill to set up a little store across the street and become a barber and earn a decent living. Today, uh, in my state, to become a barber, you have to spend twenty dollars to $25,000 to go to a school for two years to take a state exam to get licensed to cut hair. Uh, there are dads that cut their kids' hair every day that don't have a license. And so from a public policy perspective, that's over-regulation. And we see that there are regulatory barriers that prevent people from tapping into their gifts and their talents and their skills. Because who has twenty dollars to $25,000 to learn how to cut hair? Uh, there are psychological barriers where someone looks at the past and assumes that the problems of the past define the options of the future. And so they literally give up on their future in light of their analysis of their past. Those are psychological barriers that become cultural. Uh, th there are some uh, institutional barriers that cause someone who had a minor infraction with uh, law enforcement to be denied opportunities to do jobs that that minor infraction would have no impact on. So we have a number of barriers that persist in society and that started out in many instances as efforts to help people when in fact, it became structures to, uh, to limit people. 
So, so there are, there are uh, numerous barriers. And of course, there are some uh, residual systemic issues that, that relate to race and class and others. But I think the policy barriers today far outweigh those historic systemic issues that are horrible and that produce incidents that are um, intrusive and that are offensive and, and, and frankly illegal. But I think the, over, the overriding issue has to do with a young lady who wants to braid hair, but cannot braid hair until she spends twenty $25,000, two years of her life getting a license to braid hair. Yeah, I, I think Pastor Story's uh, nailed it in terms of how we think about the barriers that are preventing people from realizing their full potential. I might put them into a few buckets uh, to summarize. Um, one, there are significant historical and current injustices that are preventing people from realizing their full potential. You know, there's no other way of looking at the income disparities among communities uh, in America and not realize that we are still dealing with um, with injustices, particularly related to the institutionalization of racism through public policy and in our communities that we still deal with today that are, pro that are providing significant barriers to um, many people to realize their potential. Um, there's also, as Pastor Soares talked about, some of those you know, occupational licenses for hair braiding are cronyism, those that have gotten ahead are trying to pull up the ladder behind them. And so there are barriers to everyone just having the same opportunity through our public policy. And then the last bucket that I talk about is sort of the, the benevolent harm, the well-intentioned approaches that are inadvertently fostering control and dependency. And so to, today, when we're spending trillions of dollars fighting the war on poverty, and hundreds of billions more in private philanthropy across our communities, a, a great deal of those dollars are entirely well-intentioned and trying to help, but in the process, they're fostering control and dependency and, and making people's poverty easier to endure, and yet it's getting harder and harder to overcome. And so as we look at those barriers, they're across all of the key institutions. They're whether uh, a proper education is happening that's helping people discover their gifts. It's whether businesses are providing principled entrepreneurship and opportunity to everyone. It's whether communities are surrounding people with the social capital and the belief in their ability to contribute in order to support them to be a springboard to success. And finally, it's in government that too often at its best is fostering control and dependency, trying to help, and at its worst, pulling up the ladder and preventing all people from, from accessing opportunity. So there are sort of multifaceted barriers across our key institutions, and we've got to knock them all down. But you know, uh, Evan, you said something earlier that's key because it's foundational in each category of these barriers in terms of breaking out, it has relationships. That when, when we analyze how people are able to rise above those barriers or to, to, to succeed in spite of those barriers, what, we, what you see in each instance is the presence of relationships. Um, you talk about institutional racism. In my state, there are very few African-Americans that sit on the boards of directors of banks. And of course, when a black person sits on the board of a bank, they have they have uh, not only access to capital themselves, but they have access to the policy of that bank, which ultimately um, can 
break the barrier of access to capital for small black businesses. So one, and, and, and since, since I've been there, I, I know it, one black person on a bank board could make an impact on the economic opportunities and options for the black community. Well, um, the Black Lives Matter and the social movement in New Jersey has not put any pressure on banks to open doors to black people on boards. However, a friend of mine called me two days ago and said a friend of his owns a bank. He started a bank, he's chairman of the bank, and he'd like to know how to find an African-American to put on his bank board. And so my friend said, well, I know a guy that can help you. And he called me and the three of us will meet and it will result in a black guy going to board. It's, it, it, it's not public policy. There was no social protest. There was no political pressure. It's relationships. And ultimately, it, whether you have uh, licensing or institutional racism, or whether we have um, uh, any of these cultural barriers, at the end of the day, when we look at success in America, foundational to that success lies relationships and um, organizing efforts that result in the formation of relationships that create sustainable success. I think that's, that, that's important. You said that earlier and it runs through um, <clears throat> a category of, of barrier breaking activity. You know, Thomas Sowell said that there are no solutions there are only trade-offs. And that, I read that. I've heard him say that in, in, in videos. It sticks with me. And what I'm hearing, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing is we've had government that has taken action that they thought was in the best interest of people. And th that wasn't a solution. It was, just, it was just another plug that created another set of trade-offs. And a lot of those trade-offs have resulted in barriers that are, are making income mobility much more difficult in this country. And those barriers are being overcome by people working in the institutions of business and in community to overcome those barriers and break through those barriers. Is, is that kind of summing it up, or is that, is that accurate or inaccurate? Uh, well, I don't know that about... Is it too simple? I, it could have been way too simple, too. I, no, I don't think I'd frame it that way, Dwayne. I don't think I'd frame it as trade-offs. I'd, I'd think about what are the conditions required for human flourishing, particularly for those that, that, are, uh, that are start at the very bottom of the economic ladder. So presumably uh, those individuals are facing the most barriers. The economics are a, are a symptom of some disconnection from community and contribution and opportunity. Those barriers are sometimes purposeful. If you're talking about why there are not um, black leaders on the boards of banks, it is, uh, it is because of historical injustices, both government and, and culturally. And so if that barrier exists, we understand it to, to be something holding back black Americans from, from banking, for example. And access to banking is, uh, you know, and Pastor Soros can speak much more eloquently than I on this, given his work with um, defree and financial empowerment, but access, a lack of access to, um, to those financial services is a significant barrier holding many Americans back. And so the question is, well, if that barrier exists, 
what is our solution going to be? And here I'll, I'll get a little bit wonky and share uh, one of my favorite authors. It's a guy named uh, Richard Cornell, Dick Cornell. He uh, passed away in the early 2000s. And he, uh, he wrote a, a phenomenal essay uh, that tracks a, a major book that he wrote. Um, the essay is called, well, the, the book's called Reclaiming the American Dream. Uh, it's about the voluntary sector in America. His famous essay is on denationalizing community. And what Pastor Sori said that I thought was just really profound is that the answer to the problem of access to banking ended up coming very much through community and informal association. Uh, the banks realized that they had a problem, but didn't know how to solve that problem. And they connected to, uh, to one of Pastor Sori's friends who said, through a conversation with Pastor Sori's, we can help alleviate this and start driving productive solutions. What Cornell would say is that we've, we've looked at the size of these problems. They're so big, right? Historical injustices, uh, 40 million Americans in poverty, 100 million Americans near poverty in this country, likely to cycle through at many times during their life. If, if the problems are that big, we must have big national solutions to the problem. But maybe counterintuitively, the way we think about these problems is that the bigger the problem, the more we need a diversity of approaches in our responses, the more dynamic our responses need to be, the more bottom up those responses need to be. And they ultimately must believe in people and equip them to overcome these barriers. So we need to denationalize community and drive productive change. I think that's, that's what Pastor Soares was getting at. So Dwayne, let, let me give you a practical example of what, what Evan just said. We, we know that uh, a child in the foster care system is more likely to age out into prison, to age out into drug addiction, to age out into teen pregnancy, to age out into poverty. We know that. All the data leads you to that conclusion. We know that a child born um, and abandoned in the hospital and thus uh, in need of fostering from birth uh, is is more likely to have emotional psychological defects depending on the length of time it takes for the state to assign that child to a foster parent. The solution to that problem in my state 25 years ago by the traditional policy leaders was to increase funding for the existing foster care system to enable it to hire more caseworkers and those caseworkers would have a lower caseload, and that lower caseload would solve the problem. Now, that's not a poverty issue head on, but ultimately the success or lack thereof in dealing with children in the foster care system is, is really an anti or pro-poverty initiative. Um, and it didn't work. The more money that the state fund used to fund the existing system which is that, that global solution, right? And the more laws the legislature passed to require the state to look after foster children, the, the more they fail. And so when the state came to, to me and said, we need help, I said, well, it's, well, we have to do it on a bottom-up approach. And in, instead of asking for more laws or asking for more money, we asked for more foster parents. <laughs> and so we recruited and trained uh, 465 families to be foster parents. 
and we solved a good chunk of the foster care problem in New Jersey and literally worked ourselves out of a job because we were so effective, we were able to recruit people from the community to take children in to their homes, 25% uh, of whom were adopted permanently. So, so I can show you case after case after case where Evan's perspective is correct. And I'm not so sure that I would call that a trade-off. We're talking about a solution that's aimed at the people for whom the solution is supposed to be designed. Often solutions in education are really not aimed at student achievement, but, but teachers. Solutions in law enforcement are often aimed at police unions. Solutions in the marketplace are rarely aimed at the people in whose name the solutions were created. So we have this bait and switch. And, and that's why I'm not even sure the government has, has uh, good intent all the time as the government create solutions because often by the time legislation and policies hit the ground, what you find is that the caregivers in the system benefit more than the people for whom they're supposed to care. Yeah, Dwayne, let me hop in here because child welfare is actually has become a major priority for our poverty initiative in America. It's a key driver of poverty, as Pastor Sori said, you know, all of the research demonstrates even in, you know, there's a study in New Mexico, even if a kid spends two days in foster care, the trauma of being pulled out of their home uh, leads to significantly worse outcomes over the course of their life. The research is quite clear that, uh, that a, a child in a, in a home that is not abusive, but, not, but, uh, but where most of the foster cases come from, which is neglect, is actually far better off in that neglectful home than they are in foster care for a number of reasons related to the trauma of the experience. And so uh, we're significantly concerned about the child welfare system. It's become a major priority. Get this stat, 50% of black American children have had a formal report filed with child welfare services on their parents, 50%, right? And and overwhelmingly, because the incentives in child welfare are to prevent harm to the child and to make sure we, we get them out of a tough situation, that once that report is filed, far too often, there's a, it's a glide path toward the coercion of the state, that the state is the solution to this kid's problem. And there's no doubt that those reports are based on real things that are happening in that kid's life. The mom is working two jobs and not around for the kid, or there's, you know, there's bad influences on the child or whatever else it might be. But the answer to me is not the, the loving hand of government to solve that problem. And so uh, what's to be done? Well, in addition to the work that Pastor Sori's mentioned, uh, we're working with an incredible organization called Safe Families for Children. And it's really a private alternative to this coercive approach. So what Safe Families does is it, it works with mostly churches, but also other nonprofits. And it equips them to mobilize just to be community for families who may be in crisis. So uh, a mom needs to work a second job to pay off a, a car repair. And so they need help with their child or uh, a, a, a dad needs to go into addiction recovery services and therefore needs help with uh, his children. And so they do everything from uh, host a child for a month or two to help a, a parent or parents get back on their feet. Um, but also mentorship and surrounding and providing support to families in crisis. And as a result, 
93% of safe families uh, children do not go into the foster care system. 5% uh, end up going to long-term to a relative of that person and only 2% end up in foster care. In Illinois, where they got started, they took foster care incidents from 52,000 kids a decade and a half ago down to 14,000 today. So this is a bottom-up alternative to solving a major problem that all of the top-down approaches have been making worse in this country over a number of years. And so, you know, that's why child welfare is a, a major priority of ours. We think we can drive real change in the foster care system and child welfare services in the country. Would you mind describing what a society of mutual benefit looks like in regards to this priority initiative? Poverty is a way of describing individuals that are facing significant barriers to their self-actualization, to being everything that they can be. And when those barriers ex exist, we have too many people that are not uh, included and participating in a culture of mutual benefit. Um, if you see poverty as sort of a deficiency problem and you see the world as a zero-sum game, then it makes sense that you would just think about how do I redistribute resources from those that have them to those that don't have them. Right. But if you believe in people, if you believe that they have something to offer all of us, right? If you believe in mutual benefit, then you become just obsessed with removing whatever barriers are preventing them from realizing their full potential. Because in a culture of mutual benefit, not only does removing those barriers have the moral value of helping individuals to thrive, which is what gets me up every morning to come do my job, right? I want to see people flourishing. But it also creates the virtuous cycle of all of that talent, all of those contributions. Because we know that, that talent, and an amazing amount of talent, is redistributed equally across all kinds of people. And we know that today there are folks that are struggling just to subsist, who could be the top musicians, the top mathematicians, the top engineers, right? And they've got so much, the, the top entrepreneurs, they've got so much to offer us all. And so as a society, if we want a true culture of mutual benefit, we have to make sure that there are no institutional barriers. And by institution, I mean both government and in communities and in business and education that are preventing us from all benefiting from the incredible contributions that everyone can make. So, so therefore, Dwayne, based on that definition, which I agree with, efforts to address poverty have as their mission helping people cross the bridge as opposed to managing people while they're in poverty. You know, it's like, it's like uh, in the Bible, there's a story about the prophet Ezekiel being in the Valley of Dry Bones and God asked Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel said back to God, well, I don't know, you know, you tell me. And, and the challenge was for Ezekiel to prophesy to the bones. Don't write a book about the bones. Don't set up a program to manage the bones. You know, don't do an historical analysis of how the bones got dry. Prophesy, pro you know, bring to these bones the challenge of what happens when God's power and God's spirit gets involved. And unfortunately, poverty has become an enterprise that people get paid to manage, as opposed to a mission that people are called to eliminate. And that's why 
you know, in, in, in our work here in New Jersey, you know, I constantly remind our staff and our volunteers, our job in this instance is to work ourselves out of a job. We don't have any clients. We don't use the word client in, in our business. So over 30 years in this neighborhood, which is the poorest neighborhood in Central Jersey, we've never used the word client. Our corporate, our corporate sponsors are our partners and our homeless um, uh, families that we serve are our partners. Everybody's a partner because in the partnership, everybody brings value to the relationship. And as long as we see people on a hierarchical basis, we are the agency, you're the client, that, that conjures up traditional social work images of you need me to survive, but I need you to survive. And I need you to stay in the state that you're in to ensure that I can get more money to manage your circumstances. And that's the paradigm that we have to break. And it's the movement that, that Evan and I work together to, to, uh, to actually accomplish. Well, and I, uh, this is such a profound and important point from Pastor Soares. I want to uh, double down on it. You know, the traditional poverty uh, sector uh, looks at measures, for example, at the macro level. They look at third grade literacy rates and high school graduation and recidivism and job outcomes. And all those things are important things to care about, track, and measure. Don't get me wrong. But uh, all of them presuppose that the customers are those that are funding efforts to alleviate poverty. Government funders, big foundations and philanthropies, high net worth individuals, they are the customer sort of putting resources in to somebody else to manage poverty and see a difference on those macro level indicators. We fundamentally reject that approach to poverty. We believe in people and in the agency of people. And so we're trying to create a better social economy, one in which we measure and understand success on did we help individuals to grow? Did we help individuals to tap into their gifts and talents to contribute and lift themselves out of poverty for good. And so that's gonna require an entirely different measurement ecosystem. We're experimenting with technology platforms and survey methodologies and feedback mechanisms. So that we begin to understand the problem of poverty, uh, not as, a, as one of sort of looking at macro level uh, societal indicators, but one of looking at, a micro, at the micro level, much like a business does, have we created value for people? Uh, and here, I think there's enormous opportunities for disruption and we can bring about a whole social economy. It gets back to your original point, Dwayne. You said, how is this about a culture of mutual benefit? Uh, Dick Cornell in that book I mentioned earlier talks about really there's three sectors. There's uh, the coercive sector, government, the public sector where the motivation to action is rules and regulations. You penalize folks for not obeying the rules. And this is an important motivation for action in a number of different areas of our life together. Then there's the private sector where the motivation is the mutual benefit of economic profit. If I create value for you and you pay me for it, then uh, one plus one equals three or more because we created mutual benefit because we both got something out of that voluntary exchange. Well, Dick Cornell talks about a third sector that explains actually probably even more of human activity than those two sectors. It's the mutual benefit of service to one another. It explains why I have a great relationship with my wife, why I parent my kids, why I help a friend move, why I volunteer at my church. It's because I get meaning and purpose and value out of creating value for others 
um, when no economics were involved. This is what Dick Cornell calls the service motive. And here in a culture of mutual benefit, we all get meaning, purpose, and value out of helping each other succeed. Uh, I think it's a critical aspect of this whole vision and philosophy. I have a document that uh, I review every time I do this this podcast, and it, it really lays out the four mutually reinforcing principles. But what I like about this document is it gives underlying principles that support that mutually uh, reinforcing principle. So I'm looking at equal rights right now. A system of equal rights articulated in the Declaration of Independence requires a respect for the dignity of all people and equality under the law. And the first underlying principle bulleted on this is moral dignity of the individual, no matter their station in life. And what I've heard from both of you is that is really paramount or the foundation of this PI. Am I hearing you wrong? No, you hear me right. <laughs> you, you hear me right for sure. Um, you know, this all starts with a deep belief in people, a deep belief in people, that all people have so much to offer. And to tie it back to the Declaration of Independence, I think most people think of the Declaration of Independence as sort of a treatise on the role of government in society. And it certainly has much to say about that. But the Declaration of Independence came out of a classical liberal tradition that was far broader than, uh, than any, anything related to the role of government in society. It was a fundamental belief that human beings were given by their creator, nature or nature's God, as, it, as Jefferson writes later. They're given by their creator these inalienable rights by nature being human, which demands that we respect that humanity, not just through the role of government. And, the, and of course, the implication here is that government does not exist to give rights, but instead to protect rights that people naturally have. But that concept that, that all people are created equal and, and then therefore deserving of dignity in our respect is one that, should impl that has implications for how we treat one another for what we, how we believe in each other, the value that we see in each other. And a big part of this priority initiative is bringing the Declaration of Independence to life, not just in how it dictates our rules, but how then shall we live as Americans to be yeah. citizens uh, that live up to these great ideals. So Dwayne and Evan, um, there's a flip side to this same truth that, that belief in the dignity and worth of all humans and that, that uh, deep belief in people. The flip side of that, which is uh, uh, what a lot of my work involves, is, is that the denial of that or the absence of that deep belief in people has as one of its key outcomes, people's lack of belief in themselves. And when, when you have structures and when you have philosophies and systems that, that um, have this prolonged history of disbelief in people. And, and to, to Evan's earlier point, it could be um, uh, benevolence. It could come in the package of benevolence. You know, if I, if I don't believe you'll ever be able to do it, and, and I'm going to be there to do it for you, it, it, it robs people of the ability to have a deep and abiding belief in themselves. And when you have when you have no belief in yourself, even when the systems change, 
you won't participate in the systems, which becomes one of those barriers we talked about earlier. And so, for instance, when we talk about money in, in, in the D-Free program and the D-Free Foundation that Stand Together partners with, we have, to, we have to start by helping people understand why they spend the money they have the way they spend it. Because if I don't have a belief, an abiding belief in myself, then I'll, I'll become the kind of consumer that buys things to compensate for my lack of belief in myself and these symbols that cost money become the uh, definition of who I am. And so, you know, it, it's, it, and that's, that's why this whole area of, of addressing poverty has gotta be more holistic than simply, quote unquote, redistribution of wealth or, or even increasing government benefits. Because I could raise the minimum wage from $15 an hour to $500 an hour and end up being the, the National Basketball Association, where young men who are making a half million dollars a year go bankrupt within three years of retirement because what they have lacked is a deep belief in themselves that allows them to save instead of spend. And you have a whole culture of trinkets that define personhood. So, so it's, a, it's, a very, it's, it's very important to hear what Evan's saying about the micro measurement of success. Because uh, for instance, when, 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 when we challenge people to stop using credit cards to finance lifestyles that they can't afford, it really speaks to this whole value, this perspective on, on who, you who you believe you are. And um, you know, I haven't written enough about this, but it's fine to challenge the, the, the society at large to believe that every human has worth, but it's, but it's almost useless unless that human believes that he or she has worth. We've talked a lot about mutual benefit already. It's, it's one of our four mutually reinforcing principles. When the values and laws of society respect the dignity of individuals and uphold their rights, people succeed by creating value for others, motivating them to assist rather than harm one another. Have we covered this one already throughout the show, or do, is there anything else you want to add about it? No, you know, I said at the beginning, I think before we even started recording, that, you know, I, I was trained to be an activist. I was 16 years old when Martin Luther King was killed. I was drawn that day into activism, and my, my life was committed to activism until I discovered that to be an activist, what I had to do every day for a living was find another problem to point out as opposed to solving problems, which uh, became the rest of my life. And in, in solving problems, my life is now in service to others, as opposed to being a quote unquote advocate for others. And the outcomes are measurable. And so this idea of, of service for mutual benefit, it has, it has quantifiable value because that's in fact the basis of uh, the free enterprise system the fact that I can create and market products that people need. And in so doing, I can benefit as the entrepreneur and, and people can benefit as the user of my products. And the market resolves whether or not the product is useful. And so whether you're talking about the free enterprise system, capitalism, or even democracy, that mutual benefit is key for sustainable societal and institutional structures. 
Well, here I am um, just uh, bowing down before Pastor Story's wisdom. I think that was, you know, that was such an amazing encapsulation of the principle of mutual benefit. The only thing that I would have to add that we haven't talked about is I think there's this uh, lack of faith in the power of the mutual benefit engine, so to speak. So if you ask the average person about the problem of poverty, they'd say, geez, 40 million Americans in poverty, 100 million Americans near poverty. It's these systemic issues that are facing uh, people in poverty. The only thing big enough to solve it is the government that can spend trillions of dollars. And they view philanthropy and communities as this small thing that could never be big enough to solve these problems. And they're just so incredibly misguided. I can't, I can't, uh, I can't uh, fathom it. Our communities are by far the biggest, strongest, most robust thing that could ever solve problems. We learned that from Alexis de Tocqueville when he came to America and talked about how um, when he came to America, the thing that he saw was Americans coming together of all different uh, types and ages and conditions uh, to work together in common cause. And he called them a power that speaks, a, a power that one sees from afar, a power that speaks and to which one listens. And it today is still that thing. If every church in America helped just a few people who are chronically jobless to find jobs, we'd have nobody that's chronically jobless. If every faith community helped one chronically homeless person in America to, to find a home, we would have nobody who's chronically homeless. If every single person helps just a couple of their neighbors to overcome whatever their barriers, we'd have, we'd have significantly fewer people facing hardship of any kind. It might be informal more than it is formal, but our communities, people helping people, informal association and formal association is by far the most significant force that exists in society today that can bridge to the other significant force, which is the engine of mutual benefit of economics, the market economy, job opportunities, value creation. But communities could be this powerful bridge to anyone not participating and that's the thing that we need to unleash. That's what we have to remove barriers uh, to, to make happen. The third mutually reinforcing principle, openness, equal rights and mutual benefit, foster openness by allowing the free movement of ideas, resources and people that generate knowledge, innovation and opportunity, fueling progress throughout the society. When I look at the first two sub points on that, it's respect and civility and humility. And as I'm looking at this and I'm listening to you talk and I'm thinking about the next the next question, I think to myself, openness isn't just for other people, Dwayne. You've got to remember this. Openness is for yourself, too. And when I look at respect and civility and humility, my first thought was, what are my internal barriers regarding this priority initiative, regarding this? And, and my, my, my thinking went, maybe what you think you know about people in poverty isn't the reality of what's going on. Maybe maybe you are as ignorant as everybody else on what's going on here, and maybe I have so much more to learn about this issue and, and its causes and its potential solutions that I've, I've got to be humble, and that humbleness, that humility, will allow me to be open to the possibility that I have so much more to learn. I think... Through that lens, I can see how openness is key to the vision of poverty. How did we use it to come up with the vision that we have today? Well, 
Dwayne, uh, thank you for saying that. And I think that introspection is really important for all of us. Uh, you know, one of the things that's been um, really inspiring to me to be a part of this priority initiative and the work that we do at Stand Together Foundation to break the cycle of poverty in communities is that I get to go spend time on the streets uh, in with an addiction uh, recovery organization, you know, in prisons. I get to go meet people who are experiencing the barriers that we're trying to remove. And as soon as you start doing that, you will dispense with all of these ideas that people in poverty are broken and deficient and lazy and making poor moral choices as the, the certainly the only, but even the predominant barriers that folks are facing. Uh, you see that individuals just have uh, barriers that are preventing them from being who they really are. And yes, does that include poor choices and whatnot? Of course. Um, but you see people for their humanity. And so I would encourage everyone who's listening to not uh, blow by the homeless individual that they walk by on their way to work or drive by on their way to work, to consider opportunities to uh, love and serve uh, folks who are experiencing poverty in any way, because they're going to realize that their that their perceptions were closed and narrow-minded before they started. Um, I also think this happens at a much broader level in society. That people look at the problem of poverty and they become sort of um, they want to sort of lock it down. So this is where the nationalist and populist impulses come. People want to prevent immigrants from coming to our country because we can't handle the folks in poverty uh, today or new individuals who they mistakenly believe will drive poverty. And they become sort of closed-minded uh, to not only ideas, but, but to people. And this never is the solution, right? We need to open ourselves up. We need to be open to new people. And we find that people drive human progress. Uh, they don't hold us back. And so this idea of openness is, I think, really critical to our entire vision uh, around poverty. Yeah. You know, Dwayne, like Evan, I I'm thrilled that you would say that. You know, this concept of openness has as its prerequisite humility. That, that without humility, we'll never be open. And that humility does drive us to a willingness to learn and benefit from anybody. You know, I, I, I'll tell you a quick story. Our church is in a low-income neighborhood surrounded by public housing and and all of its implications. A month ago, we had testing for COVID-19 and antibody. We partnered with a health, health provider. We put the word out. And in two days, we tested about 900 and, and a few people. Um, in our debrief, uh, my staff reported to me what we had done. We had greater capacity. And when I looked at how we distributed the information, it was mostly electronic, it was mostly English. I said, let's do it again. So this past weekend, we did it a second time. The difference between the first time and the second time was the first time we had 900 people, second time over two days, same timing, we had 1,300 people. And the difference was a woman that Evan has met named Lulu. Lulu has no education. She, she, she's the queen of the public housing neighborhood. 
And this time we went to Lulu and said, Lulu, we need you to get the word out. And, and because we, with all of our doctorates and master's degrees and all of our education, we humbled ourselves and we're open to an unlettered person who has no title, no particular role. She's not a pastor of a church. She's just Lulu. She is an institution of one person. We went from 900 people to 1,300 people, and the big difference was made by a woman named Lulu. She, in that sense, was the leader of a church. I've got three earned degrees and 8,000 church members. But Lulu did something in this neighborhood that none of my staff and none of my church members could do. And so, um, you know, Sears could have been Amazon. In fact, Sears should have been Amazon. When you talk about humility on a corporate level, forget about poverty, just look at, look, let's look at the industries that are being disrupted by young people from outside of those worlds. If Sears had the Sears um, uh, catalog for, for all of my life and the way you ordered from Sears, was you, you looked in their catalog and you ordered, but they became complacent and they were arrogant and they weren't open. So these young people came along and said, you know what, we can do Sears better than Sears. And now Amazon is Amazon and Sears is closing. So humility is critical if we're going to survive and function and, and not be disrupted by people who are more nimble, more agile and more current. Well I love that story of Lulu Pastor Stories. I got to meet Lulu when we were uh, uh, touring uh, uh, Somerset, New Jersey, probably what, five years ago when we were first starting Stand Together Foundation. And I was learning a lot from you about how we should even think about this work. And I think there's a, another profound point about openness and humility here. I, I just love what Pastor Stories had to say about it. It's everything we've learned about how to actually break the cycle of poverty hasn't come from experts, really smart people who've been studying the problem. Everything I've learned about what works to help break the cycle of poverty is from social entrepreneurs doing the work in communities. Most often it's people who've experienced the problem that they're solving themselves. So they've got unique knowledge and credibility in helping others to follow their path. So it's Folks like Scott Strode leading the Phoenix, a peer-to-peer -peer addiction recovery program with half the relapse rates of the best clinical programs in the country that are helping people to tap into their resilience and overcome their addiction. Scott started it because as a, as a guy overcoming his own addiction, he started working out with his buddies who were also in recovery and talking about it together. And that bond turned into a regular um, uh, bike ride and a regular run and rock climbing. And then eventually it was a nonprofit organization serving tens of thousands of people. And so uh, that story of Scott Strode is just the story over and over again of people who have more credibility and personal knowledge. And so they're solving the problem. Now, if we're not open to those ideas, if we think we have all the answers and I'd I've uh, looked at the evidence-based best practices of how to solve addiction. You'd be led to treating drugs with other drugs. You'd be treated, you'd be, you know, incarcerating folks for their addiction. You'd be, you'd be doing all the wrong things rather than trusting those that have the best answers. And this all comes back to whether we're open to where the best ideas are going to come from. Right, right. 
Finally, for such a society to exist, its key institutions, educations, communities, business, government, remove rather than erect barriers to people realizing their potential and finding fulfillment as more people have the opportunity to use their unique talents to succeed by helping others improve society flourishes. This is the mutually reinforcing principle of self-actualization. And uh, the first point under this is self-actualization or fulfilling one's potential. When it comes to poverty, what, what, what I'm thinking about is, and, and I'm, it's, it's good timing because I'm actually reading Maslow on management now and something that, that stood out to me there as it relates to this, and, and maybe I'm off, tell me if I'm wrong, but there's a line in there that Maslow wrote that people would rather do no work than meaningless work. How does that idea of self-actualization relate to poverty? And, and, and maybe Maslow, I think Maslow was right. I, I had a job that I, I mean, I, it was, I say it was the easiest job I ever hated. And basically, my job was to sit in a box for 12 hours a night and read a book. <laughs> and I was I was nuclear security, and I thought we're we're insurance. They they have to have us. They hope they never use us. And I never I never got fulfillment out of that job. I'd come home after twelve hours of work and be energized to start writing and making videos and blogging and podcasting because that's where I was finding fulfillment. It certainly wasn't in sitting in a box for twelve hours a night. I I came home and I'd say to my wife, I accomplished absolutely nothing today. I did nothing and it was meaningless work regardless how easy it was i hated it and i think there's something to that and something to self-actualization in relation to poverty but i'm curious to hear what you all think yeah so maslow says uh whatever you can be you must be and this concept of fulfillment by uh, you know i call it the tuning fork to our team here at stand together foundation we always talk about, you know, you want your gifts and talents to match up with your contributions in such a way that they resonate with one another and the tuning fork in your heart. I don't know if anyone's seen Kevin Costner in Tin Cup when he talks about how the tuning fork in his heart goes off when he hits a golf ball. Uh, that's what we want people's, we want that tuning fork to go off as people bring what is uniquely them to contribute to others. And that's where the fulfillment comes. Uh, so many people are trying to solve poverty by making sure people have the resources to subsist. If they just get a good enough job or their wage is high enough that somehow that that will lead to meaning and purpose and fulfillment. And we know that it doesn't. If we want to sustainably break the cycle of poverty, we have to remove whatever barriers are preventing people from being who they are meant to be, right? I don't mean to get too philosophic, being who they are meant to be. And so here, self-actualization is one of making sure that we, we bring those together. You know, a lot of people uh, look at Maslow and they see the hierarchy of needs and they, they see it as a playbook and it's the wrong way to view Maslow. They say, we've got to start by meeting people's basic needs. Then we've got to meet their, um, their safety and security, then their belonging needs, then their esteem needs, and then their self-actualization. And I think that that's not what Maslow is getting at. He's getting at that, you know, those are, the, those are the, the order of how important those needs are to be met. But if you can help people to tap into their gifts and talents to contribute, they can meet the rest of their needs, right? They, they become someone who's self-actualizing. They can be resilient and figure out how to, how to make friends and belong and all those other things uh, that are lower on the, the hierarchy. So 
whatever you can be, you must be. It's a critical aspect of helping us to solve poverty. It means we can't just make poverty more tolerable. We have to help people live their best lives. Yeah, Martin Luther King said, if you're going to be a street sweeper, sweep streets the way Michelangelo painted pictures. I'm from the school that, that all work is good and that there are redemptive qualities that can be developed in any job. And that as you are becoming who it is you're made to be, you can become that before you are where you are destined to go. And so uh, I preach against this concept that there are good jobs and bad jobs. Every job is a good job. And every job is an opportunity to learn discipline, to learn teamwork, to learn creativity, to use your imagination. And uh, if, if I understand that part of Maslow, I would just disagree. I don't think people should prefer. Now, it may be true that they do prefer, but my job is to help people appreciate the value of the opportunity of all work. Well, I, I completely agree. And I'll just share, I cried like a baby recently watching this uh, YouTube video of a janitor at a high school um, who worked there for dozens of years and they held this sort of celebration of his career as he was nearing retirement. And, uh, and he comes into this uh, auditorium full of current and past students who are just, you know, uh, erupting uh, in support of this janitor. And of course, it, it, he did his job excellently for dozens of years, uh, but he had, he had more of an impact on the students through conversations in the hallways, mentorship relationships, long-term relationships, uh, long after the students were there. He had been bringing his entire self to his job, doing it excellently, and was fulfilled and transformed, and he was transforming others in the result. To me, that's self-actualization. It's not about the sort of uh, soaring nature of the job. It's people being uniquely them and bringing that to create value for others. And I just thought that's such a great example. It's, it's not about what anyone thinks of the prestige or the value of any particular uh, uh, job. It's about whether people are, are bringing them their, their selves and their unique gifts to, to make other people's lives better. And clearly that, uh, that janitor probably has done a whole lot more than I have uh, to, to bring about that uh, value for others and, and realize his best life. Yeah, in my life, the janitor's name was Mr. Brown, Raymond Brown. He was the black janitor in a segregated school. He was the only black adult in our building and he saved many of our lives. You know what, I, I've spoken to audiences all over the country and we have we, we generally start by telling our story. And I've, I've said, I don't know how many times, I could not have planned a more convoluted path from high school to standing here before you. And I look back on it and I went from high school to the Navy as a journalist, from the Navy to working with adjudicated youth and adolescent sex offenders, to getting a degree in commercial horticulture, to working at Lowe's Home Improvement Store, to becoming an armed nuclear security officer, to becoming an independent blogger, podcaster, vlogger, to then getting a job working as a, a, a trainer and now doing this today. There's no... No one in their life would say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is the plan right here. 
Uh, I'm going to get a degree that I will never apply in any job I ever have. That is the key to my success. But as you said, as I, as I look back on that path, I could say, you know, when I was in the Navy, I learned this and I apply it today in my work. And when I look at, at, at that job at nuclear security, yeah, I, I hated the job because I found no fulfillment in it. But what did I do every night? I read a book and I made myself better and I apply that knowledge today. So everything that I've done along my path has contributed to my success and my self-actualization today. So while people may rather do no work than meaningless work, there is the possibility of finding value and applying that meaningless work to your success and your self-actualization later. And that's why personal transformation leads to social transformation. As you improve yourself, as you, as you transform yourself, you're able to help society transform also, which is the key to self-actualization and widespread change. Is there anything about this, this specific issue, poverty, that you wanted to talk about and we haven't touched on yet? Well, I think that there's one of my favorite books is a book called The Alternative by Mauricio Miller. And he was the founder of one of the groups that we support at Stand Together Foundation called Family Independence Initiative. And the tagline of the book, The Alternative, is most of what you think about poverty is wrong. And it's really a book that I would encourage all of your listeners to read to begin reframing the dignity and strength of individuals in poverty. The conclusion to everything we've talked about is that are we going to approach poverty by believing in people and therefore investing in their strength and their choice in their agency and encouraging them to be the best they can be through that approach? Or are we going to treat people like they're broken, deficient, in need of top-down, outside expert help to fix, the, to, to fix them? It, because if we treat them like that, even if we had value to offer, we will only undermine their agency, undermine their long-term success. And so the paradigm shift, if, if our country could have one paradigm shift, it would be to think about the problem of poverty in this, in this belief in people, bottom-up human empowerment, and, and just knock down whatever barriers there are that are preventing people from realizing their full potential. But I think that book, The Alternative, uh, Dick Cornell's book about the independent sector and articles like Denationalizing Community. Um, these, these are sort of critical uh, foundational mental models to approach the problem of poverty differently. And if we do, I think that we'll see many more people uh, not just living better lives over time, but escaping poverty forever and making incredible contributions to our society. Yeah, I mean, that image of Ezekiel has motivated and guided me through all of my professional uh, life as a minister. You know, Ezekiel 37, can these bones live? That's the critical question. And if the answer is, well, they have to be managed. You know, it's a valley of dry bones. What they need is a, care, a, a care, caretaker. Then you approach it one way. But uh, fortunately, the prophet was honest and said, I don't know. And God gave him the answer. I think poverty requires people who are willing to believe dry bones can live.
Thanks again to Dr. Soares and Evan Feinberg for taking the time to talk with me today about poverty. What a fantastic discussion we had. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions about poverty or about this PI or about this podcast or anything else we've ever talked about on the podcast, please send me an email at toppriority at afphq.org. I look forward to reading your email. Until next time, take care and we'll see you then.